0: Thanks, Tom. My name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I'm sober today. And through God's gift of you to me, I didn't even want to drink today. And that's a miracle. That's why I think your theme for this year is so very, very appropriate. I'm already enjoying the Hoosier hospitality a great deal. Tom and Sharon met me at the airport today, and... uh, took me out to a, a great lunch, and then brought me to the hotel, and I rested a little while, and then they took me to a, uh, a dinner. I ate enough to three people. I'm convinced that, um, Scott, you don't need this timer here. You get a speaker full enough, you can't stand up and talk for very long. And if that wasn't enough, then Abby wipes me out with that song. Oh, that was beautiful. And um, this is this is so much fun for me to attend conferences like this and to stand where I stand and look out into the faces of miracles. As I rode down the escalator, coming down into the lobby out there and I heard all of the laughter, I wanted to stop the escalator and just look down and listen to the laughter and the voices. Because you know what we're doing here tonight? We're treating we're treating a fatal disease. We're treating a fatal illness. This is big stuff, folks. Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I need to say up front to you once again that it is by the grace of a loving God that I am sober and at least halfway sane today, which is half more than I used to be. And I say that because the times during my story I get caught up in all of the things that happened. And I don't ever want you to forget that it is a gift of God to all of us. Um, When I first came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I kept hearing people talk about a thing called an alcoholic personality. And I didn't really understand what this was, and so I began asking people, what is an alcoholic personality? I got about a hundred different answers. None of them made any sense to me. Until one old-timer came up one day, and he said, son, I'm going to tell you a little story that's going to answer that question for you once and for all. And if you've heard that story uh, tonight, folks, uh, guess what? You're going to hear it again. It's the story of a little drunk who was walking along the beach one day, and he found half buried in the sand a bottle. And he picked it up and uncorked it in hopes of finding a few stray drops in the bottom. And instead, there is a puff of smoke, and an instant later, standing in front of him in the sand, is a fellow about nine feet tall has a big turban on top of his head. Well, that little drunk rubbed his eyes and blinked. I mean, he'd had some bad DTs in his time, but he'd never seen anything like this. <coughs> it spoke that I am your genie. You have three wishes. What is your first wish? Well, that little drunk didn't have to think very long. He said, I want a bottle of bourbon that's never empty." Another instant, another puff of smoke, and there, sitting in front of him in the sand. is a big jug, and he uncorks it and smells it. It's the good stuff. He tilts it up and takes a great big swig out of it and takes it down and looks at it, and it's still right to the top. He tilts it up and chugs at it for about ten seconds, and just to be sure, he takes it down again. It's still right to the top. The little fella tilted that jug up, and he guzzled away at it for about 45 seconds, most he'd had in a week. And he took it down, it was still right to the top. The genie said, is that all right? That's wonderful. He said, you have two more wishes. What would you like? He said, I want two more just like this one. That is an alcoholic personality. I never had to ask the question again. And this is going to be the only time tonight I'm going to take your inventory, but I'm going to tell you, if you understand that story, you're in the right place tonight. Because I'm here to tell you, you go out on the streets of Fort Wayne here today, and you, you stop somebody on the street, and you tell them that story, they, they say, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, this one's never going to be, why would you, they don't get it. And you know what? I quit trying to make them get it. Because they're not going to understand they never did understand me. I thought I would never find anyone who did understand me until God brought me to you. And for the first time in my life, I was with people who understood. Um, I was born in a very, very, very small town up in the hills of North Georgia. Uh, I mean, a little town. They used to say on Saturday night in my little hometown, there were three things you could do on Saturday night. You could watch them unload the truck at the A&P. You could watch the water tank leak. Or you could go across the Savannah River into South Carolina and buy beer and drink. And I want to assure you, I did not arrive at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous from too much water tank watching Actually, I have to go back beyond my first drink, which was at the age of 15, to tell you my story. Because I was always a very, very, very scared little kid. I never felt that I belonged. I never felt a part of anything. I always felt I was on the outside looking in. Um, I remember my mom used to send me to the grocery store to pick up an item, and I would wander up and down the aisles for 30 minutes if necessary until I found it rather than stop someone and ask them where can I find the bread or where can I find whatever. There were a lot of people that would go to schools, that went to school with me, that would say that's not true. Bill Sanders was a member of every single organization and club that came along, church, school, scouts, whatever. true. I joined everything in a desperate attempt to try to fit, but it never worked. When I was 13 years old, I went into the profession that I've been in ever since then for almost 40 years. That's the broadcasting profession. At one time, supposedly, was the youngest disc jockey in, in, in America at the age of 13. There have been several since then younger than that. And everybody assumed that that cocky, smart-aleck kid that they heard on the radio doing spinning records and talking was who I was. It was somebody else, hiding behind the anonymity of a microphone still scared, still having trouble facing people one-on-one. <clears throat> the age of 15, one Saturday night, some of my friends said, how about going over to South Carolina with us and get some beer? And I don't know, I can't tell you today, whether it was peer pressure or curiosity or what, but I said yes. We went visit about 20 miles over to South Carolina bought a case of beer and came back and sat on the, the banks of the old muddy Savannah River. And someone opened up that case and popped open a beer and handed it to me, and I took a great big swallow. And it was, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most vile, putrid, god awful, horrible tasting stuff I had ever put in my mouth. Only drank six that night. It was terrible stuff. I, kept, I swallowed it. And I said, how in the world do people drink this? But, somewhere between the second and the third beer, the little click went off right back here. You know that little click? All of a sudden, in that moment, little Billy Sanders wasn't afraid anymore. And suddenly, I was smarter and handsomer, and wittier, and sexier than I have ever been in my life, or anybody I had ever known in my life. And I knew in that moment that I had found a friend for the rest of my life. And it almost was. You know, when I first came to A.A., you could have put me on a lie detector and, and then asked the question, Bill, how long have you been drinking alcoholically? And without moving the needle an inch, I would have said, a couple of years, because I believe that. There's a strange phenomenon that happens. The longer I stay here, the further back it goes. And I believe that my alcoholism, today, I believe I was born an alcoholic. At the age of 15, I began my journey toward becoming a drunk. And it took until I was almost 40 years old to just become an alcoholic again. And I say just become an alcoholic because I don't mind being an alcoholic. I sure don't want to be a drunk. I was a drunk for long enough. Uh, I didn't drink that much during high school because in a little bitty town the size I grew up in, there isn't any such thing as anonymity. And everybody knows what everybody else does. And uh, I wanted to go to college, and I knew if my mother ever caught me drinking, I wouldn't go anywhere. I'd be killed. I grew up in a little Southern Baptist family, and they didn't drink, at least not in public. They say it's a sign of the changing times when the Baptists start speaking to each other in the liquor store. I don't know, you know... (coughs) Eventually, I did exit that small town and went off to the great big University of Georgia, and uh, I knew that I was going to like that place because suddenly I was in a school whose student population was almost three times that of my whole hometown, and nobody cared how much little Billy Sanders drank. So I started drinking beer every day, and pretty soon I discovered liquor, and liquor was quicker, and some of it even tasted better, and uh, I was off and running. And there are a lot of people who have great, wonderful, fond memories of their college careers. I don't have very many great fond memories of my college careers. A lot of it's very hazy and very foggy because I was drunk a great deal of the time. I got in a lot of trouble when I was in school. Um, As a matter of fact, the dean of men, outside his office, there was a bench. It got to be named the Bill Sanders Bench because I sat on it more than anybody else. Uh, it should have given me a clue of how much trouble I was in when I would walk into the dean's office and his secretary would lean into his room, to his office, and say, he's here. Didn't that say he who? I found out some interesting things about the University of Georgia. They were very, very unpatriotic. They almost threw me out of school for singing our national anthem. Of course, I was singing it to an empty flagpole in front of the infirmary at three o'clock in the morning, waking up all the sick people inside. But I knew that I wasn't going to be in very good stead when the dean of men showed up in his old 57 Chevrolet, and I could see his pajamas hanging out from underneath his uh, overcoat. There's a great tradition at the University of Georgia. After the Georgia Bulldogs win a, a football game, they ring the chapel bell in the old chapel bell tower. Uh, into the night they ring the bell and they have a roster of bell ringers that goes all the way back into the last century and it's in the library in the archives of the university you see all of the people that rung the bell after every game it's a great honor I rang the bell my name's not in that roster could Good- Could conceivably have something to do with the fact that I was ringing at it at 3 o'clock on Easter Sunday morning. If you're not a sports fan, there are not a whole lot of football games around Easter. That's the way my college career went. In the junior year of my stay at the University of Georgia, I uh, competed for an internship to work. It's the big 50,000-watt clear channel, Voice of the South, WSB, radio, television in Atlanta. Dream of every kid in the South that studied to be able to work at that station. And out of the several hundreds that applied for it, the two internships for that year, as fate would have it, went to my roommate and me. And on a spring day of that year, <coughs> my roommate and I traveled the 60 or so miles to Atlanta and Made our preparations and plans to begin our internship that summer. It was the most exciting day of my life. We went to the station and met all the people we'd be working with. They were all stars to us. Went and put down a deposit on the little apartment that we were going to live in for the summer. And then we decided to celebrate. We hit half a dozen bars in Atlanta and we drank and partied. Life couldn't get any better than this. It was at the top of the world. Then we took the car that we had borrowed. Neither of us had a car. We borrowed a car from a friend and we made the trip back to Athens and returned the car to the young man's apartment. And went and decided we really didn't want this day to end. We had to celebrate some more. So we broke out some more drinks. And sometime in the early hours of that morning, I began to do what I had very often started doing by this time, and that's being a total idiot when I get drunk. And I reached up on the wall in a big old antique gun collection that the boy had in the apartment, and I took down an old long coat Colt 22 pistol dust-covered and blew the dust off. I and pointed at my roommate and said, Stick him up. He threw up his hands in mock surrender, and I pulled the trigger, and there was a sound like thunder. And in a moment, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. A few hours later, at a local hospital, they were to tell us that Wayne would live but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. In the early hours of that spring morning, a strange thing happened in a hospital room in Athens, Georgia. My roommate reached up and put his hand on my arm and said, Bill, don't blame yourself for this. It was an accident. It could just as easily have been the other way around. I know you didn't need me to do it. He forgave me immediately but I didn't forgive me for more than 20 years. I used it as an excuse to crawl into the bottle and live. I went on that summer and fulfilled that internship. My roommate spent the summer in Atlanta hospitals in surgery after surgery in a vain attempt to restore the use of his legs. Unfortunately, it was not to happen. And my pattern was a simple one. I went to work at three o'clock every afternoon And I would work through my shift until the 11 o'clock news was over at night. When the 11 o'clock news was over, a bunch of us from the various radio and TV stations and newspaper in town would all gather at the Riviera Hotel and sit down in the bar and start drinking. Back then, the bars in Atlanta closed at 1.45 a.m. I never have figured out the significance of that. They closed at 1.45 a.m., and there were usually about 15 or 20 of us media folks there. They would just... Close the door, lock it, leave us one bartender and everybody else go home and we drink until three or four or five in the morning. And I stumble out of that bar into a cab and home to that lonely little apartment. Collapse on the bed and pass out, wake up the next day and repeat the same cycle. The summer that was to have been the greatest experience of my life is today but a hazy, foggy nightmare. But as long as I had the cycle long as I had that going I could keep it going. Then it came fall again in time to go back and finish my senior year at the university. It didn't take long back at schools so it all fell apart. <clears throat> and I set a plan in motion. I began to go to the infirmary that had three doctors and I would see them in rotation about every, about every three or four days. And I talked to him about having trouble sleeping. They'd give me a prescription for sleeping pills, I'd take it down the hall to the pharmacy, get it filled, take it home, put it in my nightstand drawer in the dormitory. Day after day and week after week I did that. Until I had amassed a good supply. Then I waited on one Friday afternoon when my new roommate was headed home for the weekend to show his new car he had bought to his family. And I set my plan into motion. I stood at the dormitory window and I watched as his car pulled out of the parking lot and up the street and out of sight. Then I closed the blinds and sat down on the side of the bed and emptied all the little bottles out onto the nightstand and one by one and two by two and three by three swallowed down what was later determined to be between 50 and 60 sleeping pills. Turned out the lights, pulled up the cover. For more than 20 years, I believe that it was a huge coincidence that my roommate's brand new car broke down at the city limits of Athens and had to be towed back and he came into that dormitory room and saw the little bottles, knew my state of mind put it all together real quick and called the ambulance and I say I believe it was a coincidence because I don't believe in coincidences anymore I love the definition I heard of a few years ago that a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous I believe with all my heart that that's the first of many, many, many times that the God that you introduced me to looked down and said, big boy, I'm not through with you yet. When I think of all of the times that I drove drunk and all of the cars that I wrecked and all of the insane places that I was in over the years that were to come, it is nothing short of a miracle, no coincidence, that I'm here and I'm alive tonight. And I don't know for what purpose I am alive, but I do believe with all my heart that if I stick with you people, and I do the principles, use the principles that you've taught me in this program, that whatever that purpose may be, I'll be in the right place at the right time, hopefully to fulfill God's will. Well, they pumped my stomach out, and it was right after that that I began the great American tradition of visiting the neighborhood shrink. I don't have any idea how many of those individuals I saw over the years that were to come. Dozens or dozens, I think. Or how much money I and my family gave them. But I walked away from every one of them, damning them, because not one single one of them ever did one thing to help me. Now, this is a program of rigorous honesty, so I think it behooves me to say to you that there is at least the slight remote possibility that one or more of those doctors might have been able to help me if I had ever once told them the truth. So if you've ever visited those people somewhere around the third or fourth question, they always say, do you think you might have a drinking problem? And my standard answer was no, I drink fine. And then they treat something else. I only had one that ever penetrated through and said, you're alive. And I didn't see him but once. I eventually did exit the University of Georgia. I did it with a diploma in my hand. I have never been fully sure whether I earned it or if they just got tired of me hanging around. I'm not going to ask because I've gotten used to that diploma hanging around my house the last 30 years, and I want to keep it. Uh, I ended up in another town in North Georgia, working in a radio station. And I I decided when I graduated from college that it's time I got serious and grew up and tried to be an adult. (laughs) I was going to become a pillar of the community. I had my radio show every day and everybody knew who I was and so I joined the church and I joined civic clubs and I became a scout leader and I joined a local fraternal organization that had one of the only bars in town and guess which one ended up getting most of my attention? It wasn't the Boy Scouts. And it wasn't very long until I met a beautiful young girl and I knew in an instant that I wanted that girl's be a part of my life. I also knew that I needed to clean up my act and cut down on my drinking if I was going to be a responsible boyfriend or fiance or whatever. Until I discovered to my delight I didn't have to do that at all because that woman liked to drink just as much as I did. We hit it off real good. And she became in a few months my first wife. And we had a pattern. We'd go to the get home from work every day about 5 or 5.30, we'd throw everything in the house and then head off to the bar. We'd stay there until they closed at about 1 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes we'd even eat dinner, as long as it didn't interfere, you know. Now, most people, when they tie one on the night before and they get up and go to work the next morning, the people at the next office or the next desk or across the hall kind of look at you and go, huh. I went on last night, didn't you? It looked a little rough this morning. When you got to do a 6 a.m. radio show and sound cheerful to a radio audience at 6 o'clock in the morning, that's hell. When the bottom of your mouth tastes like the bottom of a birdcage, and your head feels like the Russian army did maneuvers on it last night, it's hard to be cheerful. And it was then that I first learned to pray. Because I would get that first record started and I'd turn the volume down just as low as I could get it and still hear it. And get the microphone off and I'd drape my hand over it and say, Oh, dear God, thank you that this ain't television. If it had been, I'd never have made it. Most of my radio audience never knew how many times that I did the 6 a.m. news like flat on my back on the floor with a microphone pulled down on my face. Holding the news like this and reading it. I'm, that's the only way I could get the room to quit going around. One day my wife came home and said, guess what? We're going to have a baby. We talked about it. We decided we both need to cut down on our drinking and put our lives together and, and, and learn how to be responsible parents when that child came. And we needed to quit going to the bar so much. And we did when that baby came. We did exactly that for about three weeks. And then we discovered the great American institution of the babysitter. And it was off to the bar again. I also know today that it, it was along about that time that was the beginning of the end of that marriage. Um... You know, I hear people talk about when they come into the program and they have marital problems and they say that they have problems communicating. I didn't relate to that at all because my wife and I communicated. You could ask our neighbors three doors down the street and they tell you the Sanders communicate. They could even tell you what we were communicating about. And our communication sessions usually followed a particular pattern. I would hang in there with the absolute best of them until it became apparent that I was on the losing end of this discussion. And then I would grab my bottle, storm out the back door, slam it, peel out the driveway in my car, up the hill, I'm out of here, I don't have to stay here and listen to this crap. Over and over and over and over again that happened. One Sunday afternoon, we got ready to get into a discussion, and... Uh, I had all my facts together then. I was ready. I had them lined up and numbered in my head. I could not lose this one. About 10 minutes into it, I was losing. So I did what I always did, grabbed my bottle, stormed out the back door, slammed the door, got in my car, peeled up the driveway, up the hill, I'm out of here, I don't need to listen to this. Just like all those other times. The only thing different about this Sunday afternoon, I still had my pajamas on. Well, my wife did what any sweet, loving, caring, thoughtful wife would do. She called a friend to come get me and bring me home. The only thing wrong with that is the friend happened to be a police captain. And he found me sitting in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn, minding my own business, sitting there talking to my bottle. He came up and tapped on the car window. I looked up and said, hey, Harold. He suggested I get out of my car and get in the car with him, and I told him he could, I told him no thank you. Then he began to talk to me about his relative size to mine and his Marine Corps wrestling experiences and the impact of that billy club hanging on his belt up the side of one's head. And, you know, the more he talked, the more it made sense that I might want to go with him. I was drunk. I wasn't stupid. I got out of the car and got in the car with him, the police car, and he took off down the street. I also wasn't so drunk that I didn't know in about two turns we were not headed toward my house. In about three more turns, I knew where we were headed because we pulled into the emergency room parking lot of the local hospital. Before I could protest or say anything, he opened the door, escorted me out of the car into the hospital, and before I could blink, I was checked into a room upstairs. Folks, you won't believe how fast you can get checked in a hospital when you already got your pajamas on. Most hospitals got a thing about drunks sitting in the lobby with a bottle in their hand in their pajamas. So if you're ever worried about filling out all those insurance papers, just walk in. I never saw any papers. I checked out of that hospital about three weeks later, and within two hours, the time I checked out, I was home, drunk. Didn't learn a thing. It was pretty soon after that that my wife and I took the uh, geographical cure and moved back to Atlanta, or to Atlanta for me, or back to Atlanta for me, to Atlanta for her. She always lived in that little hometown of hers. You know, if I had learned something then that I learned a few years ago from an old-timer in the program, I could have saved myself a lot of moving. Because even when I moved to Atlanta, I'd lived on every side of Atlanta, moved all over the place. An old-timer in the program a few years ago told me something I wish I would known then. He said, you got to learn sooner or later that no matter where I go, there I am. I never could outrun what I was trying to outrun. We moved to Atlanta, and I got uh, involved in a part of the broadcasting business that I've been in uh, since then. And and part of my job involved a thing called public relations. Well, you know, I took the job, but I didn't even know what public relations was. little town where I came from, you didn't have relations in public. And and they had a thing uh, that I also had never heard of before, but I liked a whole lot. They had a little thing that they did in Atlanta called Three Martini Lunches. Actually, I like five martini lunches better, but if you wanted to have three, that was your business. And I discovered another thing that they, that they had that I liked, a uh, thing called a happy hour. And that's where you go in and order one drink, and they set two drinks in front of you, sometimes three. I mean, really put them there. There was a lot of times I'd see two or three drinks sitting in front of me, but these were really there. And it didn't take too long to discover that if I stretched the three martini or five martini lunch longer and I went to happy hour earlier I could make the two meet and didn't even have to go back to work in the afternoon. I didn't even notice that my staff that worked for me liked that a whole lot. Because while the fellow that came in in the morning could be a reasonably nice guy sometimes, the one that came back after lunch was ugly argumentative judgmental, forgetful. You see, my friend for life had begun to turn on me, but he didn't let me see it. It did not allow me to see that my staff was afraid of me, that they avoided me, that they prayed I wouldn't come back. My disease did not allow me to see, and I do believe alcoholism is a disease. Nothing will convince me otherwise. But my disease did not allow me to see that my little girl, who was now five or six years old, never invited friends over to spend the night. She never knew when Dad's going to come home in the middle of the night, roaring drunk, putting his feet through television sets, smashing furniture, throwing things out the window, dragging her out of the bed at 3 a.m., demanding that she clean up her room or some insane behavior. I didn't notice that the only look that was in her eyes was one of fear, and of hate, and of disgust. The next morning, after one of those escapades, my wife, as I came downstairs, was gleefully telling me every gory detail of what I had done the night before, and before I could protest, I had to look around and see the smashed TV screen, or the cracked or shattered plate glass window, or the hole in the wall where I put my fist. And I'd look at the breakfast table and I'd see the little girl cowering, eating her cereals. And over and over again, I'd take my little girl by the hand and say, Karen, come on, sweetheart, let's take a little walk. And I'd go walking out down the sidewalk, talking to my little girl and say, Mama, told me what I did last night. And I want you to know I'm sorry. And I promise you, that it's never, 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 never going to happen again. My disease did not allow me to see that there was not even a flicker of belief in that little girl's eyes because we had taken too many walks and she had heard too many empty promises. More and more often, my wife was off in one direction drinking and I was off in another direction drinking. That first wife of mine could put away some booze, I'll tell you. And all too often, that little girl would be at home alone Scared on the phone calling bars. Is my mommy there? Is my daddy there? And there would be the voice of the bartender saying, Just a minute, here it's your kid. With a look of disgust. And I'd get on the phone a little scared, trembling voice on the other end of the line would say, Daddy, come home, I'm scared. I say, Where's your mother? I don't know. Please, Daddy, come home. And my answer was I'm going to have one more drink and then I'll be home. And you know the rest of the story. It never happened. Hours later, the wee hours of the morning, I would stumble back in and open the bedroom door and there, cowering in the corner, trembling, tears streaming down her face was a little girl. Did I get a message from that? No. My disease did not allow me to. I began drinking fancy drinks at times in those happy hours and things because it was classy. You know, the crystal stemware with the ice and the olives bobbing around, in you know, that's class. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. When you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning the sun's just coming up and you realize the view in front of your eyes is that you're lying on, on the ground in an Atlanta City park in the view that you're looking at as you look up are the nostrils of a policeman's horse. Folks, well, th- there's not much classy about that. And there's no class when your splayed spread eagle over the trunk of a police car is frisked and cuffed and hauled away. When you try to make a 78 Oldsmobile climb a steel post anchored in concrete, doesn't work. My wife and I no longer asked where the other was, and for more and more times, I was not coming home at night. I was waking up in strange beds with strange people in strange cities, and I began that game of opening the nightstand drawer and pulling out a phone book to figure out what town I was in. End of one of my four- or five-day binges of trying to piece together credit card receipts figure out what order, where had I been, and how did I get there, and that is, as long as I had credit cards, by the time I came in this program, I couldn't even get a gasoline card. Credit destroyed, along with everything else. And as I said, I know my wife no longer asked where I was when I'd come home after three days, and I didn't ask where she was going, when she'd get me gone, and I wouldn't see her till five o'clock in the morning. And one night, she left the house, and she... Uh, was gone about three hours and when she left I was sitting in my recliner chair minding my own business drinking out of my bottle no fancy stemware just right out of the bottle and she left came back in the house stood in front of me looked down at me I'm still lying in my chair drinking my bottle and watching the test pattern on TV and she said guess where I've been and I said who gives, who who cares Well, she did something really weird. She didn't say a word. She just flipped a white poker chip into my lap. And I looked down at it, and I looked back at her, and I looked back at it, and I looked back at her, and I said, I don't know where you've been, but if that's all you won, you had a lousy night. Well, you folks know where she's been. She had been to an AA meeting. Actually, the story didn't really start there. About two or three years earlier than that, my wife had gone to a, an Al Anon meeting to find out what to do about that drunken SOB at home. The only thing is wrong, she went to the Al Anon meeting crocked to the gills. And they ticked her off by suggesting that she might be in the wrong room. So she left for two or three years. And that night she came back. she went in the right room, and she told me what it was, and I absolutely went into a blind blue perfect rage because I knew there was no way on the face of this earth that that woman was an alcoholic because if she was then it meant that she that she, she couldn't be an alcoholic wasn't anyway it didn't stop her she going to those meetings every day, something about ninety and ninety and ninety and and I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall. Church started preaching. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. Just minded, minded her own business went to those meetings. All there were little clues left around the house like I'd lift the toilet seat and there's how it works, Take to the lid. Those nights when I'd come home and go to bed, I'd shove my arm under the pillow like she knew I always did. That's the way I slept. There'd be a piece of paper under there, and I'd pull it out and open it up, and there's that little pamphlet with all those questions in it. I'd get to about the third question and go, ah, I need this crap. She just kept going to meetings. Things start changing. All of a sudden, she wasn't communicating like she used to. I mean, I'd get all my facts together, write them down on index cards, and be ready for a rip-roaring one. She'd go, eh, I don't need this, and turn around and walk off. You folks were getting to her. Well, I knew sooner or later it was going to happen. I, I told her I was waiting for the other shoe to fall. One day she did come home, and she said, I'm going to pick up a 90-day chip tonight, and I'd like to be. I said, uh-uh, No. So I said yeah or no, and she said yes, and she begged, and then there's some tears, and finally I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. I was good at deals. Made up with God, made up with everybody. So I make a deal. I go in my own car. Because, see, sometimes she'd be gone to those meetings for three hours, and I'd say, how long is the meeting? An hour. You're gone three. Well, I went afterwards, went to Coco's and had coffee. I didn't buy that. I didn't care where she was going. I just knew I wasn't going. I said, okay, where are we going? He said, we're going to a place called 8111 Club. okay. She said, follow me. We started out down Roswell Road to 8111 Roswell Road, and she turned up the driveway, and I followed her, and I thought, oh, doggone. It was ironic. I had passed that house. It was a little house sitting up on the hill in the trees that had been converted into an AA meeting place, and I had passed that house every day going home back and forth to the bar and back and forth to work. And every night when I'd come by that place, I used to, every time I'd go by, I'd say, yeah, "I really ought to get to know the fellow that lives there." He obviously has a party every night. Well, that night, old Bill went to the party, walked into that meeting room and seated about fifty or sixty people. And right at the back of the room, there was a sliding glass door, and I walked in that door. There was a post kind in the back, and I slid down a chair behind that post for the next hour, I witnessed the weirdest bunch of people I had ever seen in my life. They read all that stuff at the opening of the meeting, and then some guy raised his hand and right out loud told people he was an alcoholic. And then he said he'd gotten three DUIs driving under them in. I don't know if they're DWIs or DUIs. Drunk, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody in the room cracked up. next guy said he'd gotten five DUIs and was arrested for indecent exposure. They came unglued. And I remember to this very night the thought that went through my mind is what are they laughing for? Don't they know what they are? They're alcoholics. They've got nothing to laugh about. I thank God every day of my life today for the laughter that we share in these rooms because there's magic and there's power and there's healing in that laughter, and I think we need to do more of it, but that night didn't compute it went on and on and on, and finally everybody stood up and and um they did that chip stuff and uh uh I got ready to start for the door and somebody grabbed me by the hand from both sides and they said the only thing that was familiar to me that whole hour and that was the Lord's Prayer. And I went out that door and headed across that parking lot, headed for my car to get out of this loony bin. And I got about halfway across the parking lot and something grabbed me by the shoulder that felt like a steel vise. Spun me around and I found myself looking up into the face of a man that was seven foot eleven. I know today he's only 6'6", but that night he looked a whole lot taller. And I had remembered this guy from the meeting. Of course, you know, I'd had me a few drinks before I went to that meeting. I wasn't going to go in there. But I remembered him because he was different. Everybody else in the room, he said, my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. My name is Tom, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Sue, I'm an alcoholic. This, This guy was different. He started off by introducing himself and saying, my name's Floyd, and I'm a grateful hillbilly drunk. Give me a break. (laughs) And this guy starts talking to me about drinking moonshine up in the mountains of North Georgia and drinking out of mason jars. And I'm going, God, what in the hell is he talking about? This guy, he's talking to me with all this stuff. He doesn't even know who I am. Found out later he knew exactly who I was because she'd been talking about me in those meetings. Floyd talked to me about getting drunk in the winter and going out in the woods and falling down on the ground, his face freezing to the ground. And they had to pour coffee on him to get him up. People come out of the meeting and get in their cars and leaving and Floyd's doing that. Remember, I went in my own car. My wife comes out, goes, bye, gets in her car and leaves. (laughs) And it's me and Floyd. He talked for about three days. Seemed like it. I finally got away from him, got in my car, I went home, walked in the house, my wife started to say something. I said, don't open your mouth. I went to the cabinet and got one of those iced tea glasses about that tall, threw three ice cubes in it, filled it up with scotch, and I said, when, when I get through with this, then we'll talk. First time I got through with that, I couldn't talk, but the next day I explained it, don't you ever, ever, ever try to get me to go to one of those stupid, crazy nuthouse meetings again. And she didn't. And there were more arrests was more waking up in strange places with strange people. And there were more wo- morning walks with my little girl. And in general, my life continued to fall apart. Friends had abandoned me. I came out of a week-long blackout drunk. Complete blank week. And when I came out of that drunk, I'm sitting in my recliner chair at home. And I look down, and in my left hand is an empty bottle. And in my right hand is a fully loaded and cocked .22 pistol. And I had not remembered picking up either one of them. And as I sat there that Monday afternoon, as the sun was going down, the thought that was going through my mind was, is this all there is? Is this really all there is? Because if it is, you can have it. And through the haze of that foggy, brained afternoon, there came a voice. Voice of an angel? Well, not really. The voice of God? No. It was the voice of a beautiful, wonderful, strapping, hillbilly drunk. Named Floyd. And through the fog of that afternoon, I remembered one thing Floyd had said. One line penetrated. And it was simply this. When I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I expected God to open up the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. If where I was that Monday afternoon can be any closer to hell on this earth, I hope I never know what it is. I got up out of my chair and I went to the bathroom, and I cleaned myself up as well as I could. <clears throat> and I got in my car and I drove a few miles back to the little eighty one eleven club and up the driveway and in the sliding glass door and sat down behind the post. And folks, don't ever don't ever let anybody tell you that our God doesn't have a sense of humor. Because as I peeked around the post at the front of the room, sitting there chairing the meeting, sat my wife. She didn't see me till the end of the meeting. I don't remember a lot that was said in that meeting that night. But at the end of the meeting, a man stood up and he explained these chips. And he said the white chip was a chip of surrender. And I got up from that chair and I took the longest walk I've ever taken in my life to the front of that room. And that man pressed a white poker chip into a trembling, sweating palm. And I closed my hand around it and walked back to my seat and sat down. I choose from the bottom of my heart to believe that an old Bill Sanders walked to the front of that room that night and died. And that a new one walked away. Because by the grace of God and God's gift of you to me, I have not found it necessary to take a drink since that night. And I thank God every day of my life for that. And I say a new Bill Sanders walked away because I don't believe it when we say we have a new chance at life. I think we have a new life. Living life like we never have before. In those early days, I was like most alcoholics trembling, scared. I detoxed in that little meeting room, little meeting house in the hottest summer that Georgia had had in many years about 95 and 100 degrees with no air conditioning in that room, and I was convinced I knew how they sobered you in that place. They sweated it out of you. I'd walk out of that meeting with vodka and scotch coming out of every pore in my body. Told me very early that I needed to get a sponsor. I thought that was kind of weird because I was in the radio business. The sponsors, I had a lot of sponsors in my radio shows. They explained what kind of sponsor it was, and I decided I was going to do that scientifically. I've been to college, you know. I looked around and decided what I was going to do was find me a sponsor that was the sweetest, kindest, roly-polyest old granddaddy I could find. One that I knew would pat me on the head every day and said, You're working this program better than anybody I've ever seen in my life. It <laughs> didn't take me too long, and I found him. He was roly polier than I am. Snow-white hair, kind, sweet face. And I asked a man by the name of Doc Crandall to be my sponsor. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. In the years that that man was my sponsor i don't remember him telling me one damn thing i wanted to hear but he told me an awful lot that i needed to hear i knew i was in trouble that first day he said fine i'll be glad to be We'll sponsor each other now let's lay the ground rules first thing you do every morning when you get out of bed is you roll out of bed on your knees and you ask your god to keep you sober today and the last thing you do before you go to bed is you get back down there and you say thank you <coughs> i said well <clears throat> Doc, I grew up going to church, and I'm, you know, I've been hearing right this last few weeks around here about this prayer stuff. I know it's part, part of this program, but i got to real be honest with you. I'm not big on this knee business. I'm not real comfortable with that. He said, I didn't say a damn thing about you being comfortable. <laughs> I said, uh, but Doc, uh, <clears throat> I've, I've, I've heard it said several times that uh, this is a program of suggestion. He says, it is. I suggest you do it or get you another sponsor. That's how our relationship started. Next thing he did was give me one of those books. I've didn't even have, been around several weeks, still didn't have one. So he gave me a big book. And he said, I want you to take this home and I want you to read the first five chapters of that book and the prefaces and the doctor's opinion and all that the first five chapters, and then when you get through reading it and studying it for a few weeks, you come back and we sit down and we're going to talk about how you can make that work in your life. And I said, all right, I can get into that. So I stopped by the office supply place and I got me a couple of legal pads and I got me some sharp pencils and some highlighters, and I went home and I cleaned off my desk and I spread all that out and I went to work. I opened that book up and away I went. I was highlighting and underlining I struck through the steps that didn't have anything to do with me and I... I uh, I, I made notes in the margins of stuff y'all hadn't thought i was put in that book that I did. Made about a half a pad, legal pad full of notes and then called Doc up through about three weeks later and I said, I'm ready to talk. He said, hot dog, come on over. I went over to his house and laid all that stuff out on the coffee table and flipped open that book. He said, lay it on me. I said, Okay. Now, Doc, looking here at this first step, as I interpret—and that's as far as I got—he said, "Boy, that step don't need your interpreting; it needs your doing." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know, Doc, but 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 what, what, what I think it means is," he said, "Bill, look closely. You'll notice they wrote it in English. It says what it means. Said, so if you look even closer, you'll see they put little numbers by it, so smart college boys like you can follow along." He was tough. That's the way I began my journey through the steps. Kicking, screaming, arguing. He gave me no slack. <laughs> one of my favorite traps. I fell right into it. Didn't like it tonight. I fell into it. But I love it when everybody else would walk into it. But that night, one night, I finally, we were working along a few months later through the steps. And uh, I realized we were you know, kind of moving on along. It made a bad mistake. I said, Doc, what do I do when I get through working these steps? I hope I never forget his answer without batting an eye. He said, you lay real still because you're dead. <laughs> In those early days... In those early days, I, 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 I had a hard time getting it. I didn't understand why you people cared so much. I didn't understand what was in it for you. You know, I, somewhere along the line, four, three or four months, it occurred to me that there was another book, that there was some, some more steps or something I was going to get later, that um, I didn't understand why people cared so much. Because you see, I didn't know anything about unconditional love. I didn't have a clue about it. And one night, Doc, as I walked into the eight o'clock meeting, with my home group, he said, a young fellow here has got a similar background to yours, and this is his first meeting. Uh, stick around after the meeting. We're going to talk with him a little bit." And I said, "Gosh, Doc, I don't really appreciate you thinking of me, but I said, I tell you, I've had a long day today. I got a headache. I hadn't had a bite of dinner. He'd catch me another time." He said, "You don't understand." You're staying after the meeting, and we're talking with this guy. I said, okay, I'll stay about 15, 20 minutes. Two and a half hours later, I'm driving home, and I have to pull off the side of Roswell Road. Tears streaming down my face, because suddenly I got it. I found out what was in it for you, because in those moments, this self-centered, egotistical alcoholic had gotten out of himself, and cared more about somebody else oh what a feeling i went home and i grabbed the phone and i called doc he'd had time to get home and i said doc that's this is the greatest feeling. you know the, there are people in jails and in their hospitals and we can go down he said he he started talking about easy does it and then you know doc had another admonition that he passed along to people he said if you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink you're going to lose. If you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you will lose. You can't win that argument. I heard it up here, but I didn't hear it in here. And I hadn't been sobered a few months, I had to make my first business trip out of town to Washington, D.C. And I fortified myself by having lunch with my sponsor, went to a meeting the night before and won that morning, <coughs> headed to the airport to go to Washington. My plane hadn't cleared the ground at Hartsfield International Airport in Atlanta till the meeting started up here, 800 miles from home. Nobody up there knows you're an Alcoholics Anonymous. You can tie one on tonight, by the time you get back Friday, it'll all be going By the way, you notice I didn't say you can have a drink. I've been sober almost 12 years. I still don't have any concept of a drink. Think about it. What good is a drink? It better be a real big drink. I, this There's a part of me today, every once in a while I'll be sitting in a restaurant having lunch. And some guy, you know, a couple of guys will come in and sit down at the table, set their briefcases down and they'll order a martini. And they bring it. And I'm just glancing over it once in a while and watching. They order lunch. They bring the lunch. They eat the lunch. Taking a few sips out of the martini. Lunch is over, they get ready to go, and there's still half that drink sitting there on the table. There's still a part of me that even after 12 years, I want to chase that sucker out in the parking lot and say, get back in there and finish that drink and order another one. That day on that airplane headed for Washington, that meeting is roaring in my head. You can, you can't, you should, you shouldn't. You can get away with it. No, you can't. Nobody will know. You'll know. I even looked around that plane to see if anybody else was hearing those voices. They weren't. Plane touched down at National Airport in Washington, off the plane, into a cab, headed for the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill, and the the meeting's still going on up here. Walked into that great big atrium lobby of that hotel, and my radar spotted the bar way on the other side of the room, about as far as that back wall. I could hear the music, hear the glasses and tinkling, the laughter. took me less than ten minutes to put my baggage down in the room and come walk down and stood in the doorway of that bar for four or five minutes as the meeting played out in my head. And nowhere in sight was Doc's admonition if you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink you're going to lose. And after standing there three or four minutes, I lost. And I walked over and I sat down at the bar. The bartender came and stood in front of me, looked down at me. Paused, smiled and said something really weird. Hi, buddy. How about a coke? By what? He smiled and pointed. He said, I figured by that lapel pin you're wearing, that's probably what you'd want. I'd forgotten to take off this damn AA pin. He poured a Coke, walked down to the other end of the bar, sir. Three or four people came back, stood in front of me again. I'm still sitting there staring at that Coke. He said, you ain't got any business in here, do you? No. He said, where you belong is three blocks down the street, upstairs over the furniture store. Get the hell out of here. There's a meeting in 15 minutes. I went to that meeting that night, and I did two other things. I walked back into a bar in the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and I thanked an angel in the disguise of a bartender. And he smiled and said, you're no, no real danger tonight. He said, when I saw you standing in the doorway for so long over there, I thought you were looking for somebody. But When you sat down and I saw that pin, and I saw the look on your face, I knew what you were doing. There's no way in hell you were getting a drink out of me. the other thing I did that night is I got down on my knees beside a bed in a hotel in our nation's capital. And I said, God, if you've gone to this much trouble to keep me sober tonight, I will never test you again. And I haven't. I don't go to bars. I've got no business in bars. I don't belong in bars. I belong with you people. In all those years that I sat in those bars for thousands of hours, I never had one single bartender say, you keep coming back and it'll get better. (laughs) Think about it. On November 25th, 1985, my sponsor, Doc, went on a 12-step call and never came home. As he and another alcoholic struggled to take a shotgun away from a suicidal young man that Doc had been working with for several years to try to help him get sober, the shotgun went off and Doc caught it full in the stomach and died on his way to the hospital. And in the twilight hours of that evening, as I sat in Doc's den, my face in my, my hands over my face, crying. The thought that went through my mind was, how can I go on? how can i stay sober without the man who has been by my side leading the path showing me the way how can i stay sober And in the quiet twilight hours of that evening the answer came you stay sober by doing the things that he taught you to do and that his sponsor taught him and that his sponsor taught him and his sponsor taught him all the way back to the night that the broken down stockbroker and the has-been doctor sat in that little gatehouse across the way in Akron and said, do you think we might be able to stay sober if we help one another? My granddaddy's sponsor, Doc, sponsor, died in 1989, nine days after his 40th AA birthday. And he was fond of saying, and I share this belief with all my heart, that in the spring of 1935, God looked down and said, the lowly alcoholic has suffered long enough he's been the outcast of the world long enough i've got to give him a way out and what a way he gave us he could have decreed that we be shut away as many of us should have been behind bars away from society punished drugged but look at what he gave us he gave us each other and more laughter and more love, and more joy than most of us had ever known in our lives, more than most of us had ever dreamed of. And then he topped it off with a loving relationship with him that few people on this earth will ever know. I believe we're the luckiest people on the face of the earth. In the days and weeks that were followed, I found out what Doc meant when he said, I get more out of this sponsorship thing than you do. Because the greatest bunch of young sponsorees in the world gathered around me. They took me to meetings when I didn't want to go. They made me share when I didn't want to share. They knocked on my door when I wanted to hide. And they loved me and cared for me until I could walk again. And I love them so much for it. Now am nearing the end. But I have to tell you that this is not only a program, I mean, a story of sobriety. It's also a love story. I referred to that woman that I married back in 1966 as my first wife. Because, you see, I'm not married to the same woman anymore. And thank God she's not married to the same man anymore either. They're the same bodies, but we're not the same people. And in December 30th of 1982... On the day that she and I were to sign the final decree of divorce papers. Instead, we stood before the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier. And we renewed our vows, and we started all over again. And it's been fantastic. It's been like a 12-year honeymoon. And I love that woman with all my heart and with all my soul. Oh, we still communicate every once in a while. But making up's a lot more fun than it used to be. A lot of places where I go to speak, she goes with me. And she's always sitting on the front row looking up. You're not, Ralph, you're not near as pretty as she is. She's not here tonight. But I can tell you that she's in Roswell, Georgia tonight, thinking about me sharing with you, and I'm thinking about her. You gave us our marriage back again. And now, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. On February 15th of 1992, I took one more walk with my little girl. This time, it was down the aisle of a church. And, oh, was she ever beautiful in that long, white, flowing gown. She looked like a princess. And I looked like a penguin in that monkey suit. And I cried all the way down the aisle. And then I stood at the altar. And I placed my little girl's hand into another man's hands. And she and that young man turned and faced the same minister who had married her mother and me 25 years earlier. And the same minister who had renewed our vows 10 years before and began their life together. I'm a wonderful son-in-law. I love him very much. He better be good to my little girl. I worried the first night I met, that we met him, we took Karen and, and Paul out to dinner. And we sat down in the restaurant, the first thing he did was order a beer. And he sat there and nursed that thing for two hours. And I said, son, you ain't never going to make it in my little club drinking like that. And he won't. I cried all the way through that service, but that's really not when the greatest tears were to come. The greatest tears were to come at the reception that would follow. You see, a couple of weeks earlier, my daughter said, Dad, I want to have the first dance with Paul, but I want to have the second dance with you. And I said, oh, me, well, um, okay, uh, but you better tell me what the music is so your mom and I can practice. Because, you see, back when I was drinking, I, drank, I danced a lot like Fred Astaire and John Travolta put together. I don't dance that good anymore. And she said, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I said, Okay. And I stood along with several hundred other people beside the dance floor and I watched as my beautiful young princess, and the handsome young prince, danced out onto the dance floor to their song and held each other in their arms. And then the song ended and she came and stood in front of me and she reached out her hands. As we moved out onto the dance floor, the music began. And the words of the song were, did you ever know that you're my hero? And everything I'd like to be, I can fly higher than an eagle. You are the wind beneath my wings. Oh God, what a miracle had been worked in the lives of this family. A family wrecked, destroyed, ripped apart by alcoholism. And day by day, hour by hour, prayer by prayer, and step by step, you and God put it back together. And as i danced i looked into that little girl's eyes i call her little girl she's 25 years old <laughs> she's my little girl i looked into her eyes and i didn't see love hate and fear anymore i saw love laughter and respect i hadn't been sober but a few months and my daughter said to me daddy She sat down on my lap in the living room, and she said, Daddy, I love you so much, and I want to get to know you better. And we have gotten to know each other better. There are times when I go to speak somewhere that she goes with me, and she's on the front row, looking up, smiling. She was in high school. Before she finished high school, one of her teachers came to us and said, I thought you might like to know. I don't know whether you want to say anything to her about it or not. But your daughter runs around telling everybody at school that her parents are recovering alcoholics in AA. I said, no, I don't mind. It's far better than what she used to tell people her father was. Relapse? Well, I don't think so. I happen to believe be one of those that believes they are not necessary. Don't buy the crap that I've never known of anybody with quality sobriety that hadn't had at least one relapse. Oh, I don't buy it. I Don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for people who do relapse and come back and make it back. Because every time I get a crazy thought in my head about having a drink, some poor soul comes stumbling back into the meeting and said, Oh God, does it get worse. And I'm grateful for that. In closing, I would say to you tonight is it any wonder that my message to you would be did you ever know that you, you are my heroes and you are everything I want to be? And together, I believe together we can all soar like eagles because He is the wind beneath our wings. Thank you for having me. God bless you and good night. It's for those alcoholics who still suffer. In these rooms and out. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptations deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the, the power, and the and glory, and the Amen. Keep coming back. back. Works. Works. Thank you. Bill. The story of my life the day you came, and then the day you leave you tell, the story of my life